How's everybody doing? Yeah, I love that passage. You know, I uh, I don't think I've ever used it in in this context before. You know, we're in our series from here to eternity, and uh, I've loved this series, by the way, and not just because I've got you know some other people that have been carrying the weight of teaching and preaching. Um, we had Mike a couple weeks ago that got us real emotional about spreadsheets, which was great. Um, it's, it's amazing. It really was. And I mean, and all kidding aside, um, for these guys to lead us to the foot of the cross um, with something that is very personal. I mean, money seems in some ways impersonal and spreadsheets and the way that we manage our lives seems impersonal. But it's such, it gets to the, there's a reason that God says that it's, it digs down into the heart of who we are. You know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, and then, uh, and then and Jeff Arkell. I mean, we had no idea. We were just rolling the discs. We were just like, let's roll the dice. Never heard this guy speak or anything. Um, look at that. We've just taken the finance committee and said, hey, y'all, just, y'all do the preaching and teaching. Um, and and it, it has worked so well, and they've done an amazing job uh, leading the church. But the essence of the, the series really, I mean, you know, you talk about it's, oh, this is the time of the year the church raises money, and it's Vision Sunday, and we're trying to pay all the bills, make sure everybody gets paid. But honestly, um, and Mike would tell you this, the finance committee probably doesn't want me to say this, but um, God's done so much. We've never not paid the light bill. Everybody on staff's always been paid. Everything that we thought was the most risky thing that we could ever possibly do in terms of pushing forward and saying, okay, this is going to be our budget for this year. God has always overwhelmed us with generosity. You guys have overwhelmed us by the gospel working in you with generosity. So this isn't one of those seasons where we're like biting our nails going, I wonder what we're going to do. Um, This really is about a change in mindset. It's about wrapping our mind and our heart around the gospel and experiencing freedom. Somebody said that in pre-service prayer, and I just thought, if there's anything that we want to understand today is that it's possible that we would be free. And if we're free, then all of a sudden our mind does go from here to eternity. We begin to think differently. We don't, we're not wound up and bound up by the things that we see here, the tangible things, the gravity of this world are the things that we, that we see and that we can grab a hold of that make sense to us. But when we think about eternity, it can feel obscure. But when you've been raised from death to life, when we really, our dead heart has come out of that grave with Jesus, then it should change. Colossians 3 says that, you know, we've been raised with Christ. And so that we should set our our minds, our hearts, our very being on the things above, not on the things on the earth. That doesn't mean that we don't know what's going on down here, that we're not, we don't have money and that we give it all away, you know, and and have, have nothing to eat. But it does mean that the mentality is different. Where do we put it in the pecking order of our lives? And then how do we view it? Do we view it as our money or do we view everything that's good that we have in our hands as a gift from God coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, it says in the book of James? Do we, you know, have we had that change in mindset? And that's really what from here to eternity is about because there's going to be a day. I said this at the very beginning. There's going to be a day when all of us, every single one of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you're going to see Jesus face to face. And in that moment, it will be crystal clear. It will be very, very clear in that moment what we should be leveraging our lives for on planet Earth. And we'll see something. We'll experience something that we don't. We, we see darkly. We see dimly, it says in 1 Corinthians, on this side of heaven. But we will see face to face. 
we will experience something that will, that will make us go, oh, this is, what it, this, is what, this is what he meant when he wrote that. This is what he meant when he said, don't waste your life. You have a brief moment. Life is short. Life is short. And how we leverage our lives matters. And we get the, the beauty and the opportunity to leverage our life for what will matter most in the end, to have the things that we do, the way that we spend our resources, the way that we spend our time, we can have that matter. And we won't quite see it here, but we will get to see. There'll be this joyous moment where we'll get to see something. We were praying with the students this week, um, right before I got to speak this week, which I love. um, And just thinking about, hey, this is the normal grind, you know, and, and what we do with students and everybody's doing their serving. And, you know, you can imagine you got 50 kids coming and it gets a little rowdy in here. Um, and as for the leaders, God bless you. I mean, I'm looking at some of them. I see you right there. You hosted this week. You did really good, Isaiah. Just amazing. Up here just crushing it. That dude, man, you never know. Isaiah's kind of cool and, you know, he's like, you know, you just chill. And then he gets up here and he is He's talent, man. You belong on the stage. I loved it. And kids respond, you know. But it was just an amazing, you know, time to be with kids. But beforehand, I just had this thought that we're going to, we're going to, get, to, we're going to get to see. God's going to show us. He's going to point. I feel like he, he might rewind the tape and say, this is what was happening in the heavenlies when you guys were in here praying. This is what was happening in the room when that kid was getting hit in the face with a dodgeball. You know, this is what God was doing in the moments when you were thinking this doesn't mean anything. We're gonna get to see how we spend our lives and and what that means in heaven and how it affects people. We're gonna look around and see people's faces that wouldn't have been there had you not preached the gospel to them with your actions and with your lives and with your finances. And that's what this series is about. I mean, you look at this passage, I love that it's a picture of not, you know, obligatory giving, but it's a picture of worship. It's not this thing that this woman is doing because she has to. She's not pouring something very expensive in her mind at Jesus' feet because she's thinking, oh, I got, you know, I've been, I've been at church for a while, and my kids, you know, they go to student ministry and kids ministry. They've been watching after my kids. And, you know, we're going to get a little bit more, you know, morally, you know, tight and strong as we're in church. And, you know, it's probably time to just, you know, we got to give back. You know, we got to figure out what can we give. No, there's this just explosion in response to the gospel, to God's forgiveness, to his grace and to his mercy that causes something in her heart that is unusual. And I started thinking about what is it that in in our culture and in our society, and I think in all of history, that makes us not generous. And I think all of us like to think that we're generous, but in, in all honesty, when it comes down to the root level of generosity, I'm talking about the type of generosity that's shocking. I think we all struggle. We want to balance that. We want to look and go, okay, what can I do? What, how is this going to work out? And we you know, that we live in a world of diversity of thought. Let's make sure that we diversify our funds, we diversify our resources, we diversify our time. We put some here, some here, some here, some here, some here. But when I read scripture, when I really read scripture, there's no diversification. It's all in one place. It's all eggs in the Jesus basket. It's, it's take up your cross and follow me. But prior to that, it's leave everything else behind. What does he say to the rich young ruler? Give it all to the poor. And he's not saying that all of us give everything to the poor. He's getting to the heart of things. What have you pinned your life on? What's holding you up? What is your security? What do you think is going to save you? 
Do you think money's going to save you? And what that reveals for you and for me is scarcity mentality. I realize that all of us deal with this. This is just a biblical principle of living like an orphan, like you've got to scrape for what's yours. But a scarcity mentality, if you go and read psychology journals, psychology today, in fact, you could read that and you will find all over it what scarcity mentality does to the human heart. And it absolutely makes you the opposite of generous. Because scarcity mentality is when, you, when, you have to, when you're worried and you have to, you got to scrape for what's yours. Now, I experience scarcity mentality. I don't know if any of you know this, but I like to surf. Um, I know this is a shocker uh, for some of you that have been here for a while, but when you, you know, in Jacksonville, it, I mean, people don't always know that Jacksonville is a surf town, but it is got amazing surfing culture here. People are like, there's really waves here to surf. Yes, there's waves and, uh, they can be good from time to time. If you're in the right place at the right time, they're great, but it's a scarce surf culture. I mean, it just is. We have, there's a scarcity mentality. If you go to the premier locations, you go south side of the pier, you go to the Hannah Park to the Mayport Poles, there's a little bit of it. And that's, what, that's where localism, anybody heard of localism? Like in the surfing communities? That's in almost every surfing community. And when you experience localism, when you paddle out, people aren't smiling. Like they're not looking at you. If you're out there with your Costco board, legs all spread out, kind of flopping out there, paddling out to the side of the pier, you're not going to get met with, hey man, how are you doing? People are just stern, like, what are you doing out here? I mean, everybody's, the shoulder's going to start coming in because they're like, they're getting ready to block you. You're not going to catch any waves because there's scarcity. It's like swells come very, you know, every so often, and then it's, there's one peak where the waves are happening, and you're going to get them. So everybody kind of surrounds that little spot. Everybody's kind of looking at everybody, and there's the angry face. I mean, I realize that pretty quick. It's like, you got to figure out, and that's funny. I see people that don't surf there very often, and they come out, and and then you just hear the rumblings of all the crusty local guys just like, oh, what is that dude doing? Can you go down? You just know that right here is like our spot. This is what we do. It's just a scarcity mentality. And it's the way that it is. Now, occasionally, and if you surf, you get this, like a swell will come through where there's like consistent waves and it's all down the beach and it's everywhere. And everything in that moment changes. Like you go to, I remember one day being at Hannah Park at the Poles and I was surfing, and everybody was in the best mood I've ever, I've ever seen. Guys that I thought hated my guts because I've surfed with, and I've surfed with them, just not, I better not talk to that guy. I've taken his waves. And they're just smiling at you. They're cheering you on. They're paddling back out after they caught a wave because there's so many waves. And they're like, woo, look at you, you're doing great. And then you're getting ready to paddle in another one. And they're like, just go, because they've had so many waves. It's no longer scarce. And everybody's like, you're awesome. I'm like, no, you're awesome. And it's just, every, it's just changes completely. And then all of the surfers, they, they get out of the water and they annoy their families for a couple of weeks talking about surfing with everybody. It's like, hey man, did you get out of that swell? Everybody got out of the waves. I just hit it at the right time. It was fantastic. We spread so many waves. It was amazing. And everybody's like, I don't even know what you're talking about and you're annoying me. But that's the idea of going from a scarcity moment to an abundant moment where all of a sudden everything, the generosity, just explodes. It just, it just happens. And what, it's, what's interesting, it's contagious. I was just out surfing with a younger guy that I don't, surfed with a few times recently, and he's just one of those generous guys. He surfs way better than me, could probably beat me to every peak and, and surf every wave, but he would always, when he sees me, he just trades waves. He's ah, you go, you go. And then it's just like all of a sudden I'm letting him go. And it just kind of is one of those things that changes. And what you see here in this, like it, when it comes to money and, and the, the, the tension around money, 
Money, we, we treat that as if it is the resource that is going to save us from scarcity. Now, Mike made a great point that we really don't live in a scarce, as, as crazy as the economy is, as crazy as our political climate is, I mean, none of us, everybody's eating tonight. Everybody's going to have a roof over their head. Most of you have got some sort of internet or are going to watch Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, or whatever it is that you're going to watch tonight. As poor as we think that we are, we are not poor. I could find the person that is the most financially destitute in the room with the most debt, and I, I could probably make a good case that I could find a large portion of people on planet Earth that you're richer than. I mean, that's just... A reality, but yet we still have a scarcity mindset. Money is attached to the things like money is it's it's attached to fear. Like we we worry, we worry: Are we going to have enough? Are we going to have enough to do this? Are we going to have enough to get past this? Are we going to have enough to get out of the debt? Like Jeff was talking about last week: Are we going to have enough to get us over the hump to buy a house? What are we going to do because the economy is going this particular direction? And the world doesn't help create scarcity mindset. I mean, I know nobody's worried about the future, really. I mean, you watch, everybody's watching the news going, what's going to happen? This guy got in putting office and gas prices. We're just going to end up on a farm with, you know, you better go buy some silver and bury it, according to Fox News. You know what I mean? Like, it's got to happen right now. There's going to be weapons and tubes on a farm, and that's what we're going to do. And people, you know, we, we live in that scarcity world. Like, what, what are we going to do? It's, it's attached to fear. It's also attached to insecurity because money, we believe, is a solution to move us out of the insecure places that we are. I'll have enough money to have a, a decent enough car or I hang out with this socioeconomic group of people because this is how much money I have. It creates those levels of I'm okay in life. This is where I am. There's the people that are down here. They're struggling. They can't make it. They can't have any trouble finding a job, making enough money. And then I just need to be here where it's comfortable. I can go to this club or I can be in this, this part of a, a neighborhood. I can live this close to the ocean or this is where I, you know, you know find my life. It's, it's attached to self-esteem. It can buy me things to, you know, make me prettier. You know, gym memberships where I can work out and, you know, get, get all this tightened up and, and looking good, Right? buy the products I need to buy, buy the clothes I need to buy. I mean, that happens young. I mean, it's attached to so many things. And in that, you can see the undertone of the scarcity mentality. And when do people finally not feel scarce? I mean, the way that we, we look at it is when you have money. I mean, when people have money, we look at some of the most generous people on planet Earth, and deep down inside, some of us are just like, yeah, but they're rich. You know, they, they gave away half their income, but they're still a billionaire, you know? It's like we, we almost get cynical about that because they're so wealthy. How could, it, how could they possibly have a, have, scare, have a scarcity mentality about anything? So as we look at this passage, you see somebody that's, you know, you'll find out, you look, she's giving away a lot of money in the process. Like she, what she's doing in terms of pouring out this perfume, it's worth a lot. And she's doing some other things that somebody with a scarcity mentality wouldn't do. And so I want to look at it and say, what's prompting her to do the things that she's doing? Because this looks different than filling out a card and wondering what, what we can do as a family. This just looks like an explosion of a response and a, just a generous moment that's driven by something different than a guy giving a giving talk and a church responding to it. 
But I want to tap into that because I think that should be the heart of our generosity. Not obligatory giving, this is the time of year that we give, but are we, do we really believe, like what Dave said, do we really believe that Jesus is alive from the dead? Like what we're doing, we're living in this world and going about our lives, but there's a crazy reality. I mean, if we really believe that he died, he was crucified, he was put in a grave, and then raised up from the dead by the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the tomb is empty, and Jesus is alive. That should have some crazy implication on the way that we live our life. If that's who we're following, and he's telling us, hey, I'm just telling you all this stuff that, that, that's here. Yeah, I'll give you what you need. You know, look at the, the flowers of the field. Look at the birds. You can see all of the stuff I provide for, for them. You're going to have what you need. But don't believe the lie that any of it is going to save you. I've done everything to pay it all. And there's something after this. And I'm telling you, you've got a blip on the radar. You've got this little chunk of time to leverage your life in faith for what matters most in the end. And I'm just telling you, I'm begging. That's what the Apostle Paul's almost begging us, saying, we're going to see something that will make us realize that we wish we'd have done it differently. But right now, we can. Right now, we can think about those things differently. So there's three things I want you to see about this situation and what's happening in Luke chapter 7. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn with me. But right at the top, we see in verse 1, it says, When the Pharisees, they had invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And a woman in town who lived a sinful life. I mean, there's all kind of speculation about who she was, if she was a prostitute, that she was the woman that Jesus encountered that was getting ready to get stoned. And then he, you know, kind of throws down the gauntlet and everybody kind of has to drift away because he says, you know, he hasn't sinned, cast the first stone. And they're like, "Uh uh-oh, we got to go. A lot of people think that this is the same woman, that she, her life had been saved. So... She lived a sinful life and learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, in this culture, sometimes we read past these passages and we don't think about it. But I think about, like, in my mind, I'm a visual person, so I'm thinking about, what, what did this scene look like? What was happening culturally? In the, so at the, at the time, if a group of Pharisees and a rabbi were having dinner and reclining at the table... There wouldn't be, there probably wouldn't be a woman there. I mean, I know they should get canceled, but there probably wouldn't be a woman there. And not only that, there certainly wouldn't have been a sinful woman there. I mean, you got to ask the question, how did she get in the courtyard or get into the house where they were reclining at the table? I mean, there was, she had a plan. Like somehow she got past people. She got in there. She worked, it was a unusual situation. She had to figure out a way to get in there. It wasn't like she came to the door and everybody's like, oh, come on in, they've been waiting for you. Sinful woman, that's exactly what we want around. The Pharisees, they, they seem like guys that are really tolerant of sinful people. No, no. And the first point I want to make is this was unusual and countercultural. So what's getting, getting ready to happen in this worshipful generosity moment is it was unusual and countercultural. It wasn't a normal thing. And I think about my giving and my generosity, and I think about the way that I live my life. Is there anything about 
the way that I've given my life to God, the way that I manage my finances and push those all in Jesus' corner, that other people would look around and go, man, that's unusual, bro. That is not what the culture does. That is, that is out-of-the-box thinking. You're thinking differently than everybody else. Would anybody ask any questions? And I'm not saying, because we're going to talk about this is a personal thing you're giving. But if somebody knew what you were doing, if you had a conversation with your family members, with your kids, would they be going, Dad, that's crazy. Why are you giving that much? And to what? How do you know it's going to be valuable? What's it going to, what are we going to get back from that? Is it unusual? Is it, is it countercultural what we're doing? I remember when my friend, Brock Johnson, some of you know him, he's, he's preached here a couple of times, he's a missionary in Guatemala. And he doesn't say it. I wish that he used this, leveraged this part of his testimony when he spoke, but he's, there's a humility about him that doesn't. But he, the dude could be so rich right now, you have no idea. He was the chief contract negotiator for the Jaguars when they were good, like when they actually won football games. Like he brought people to town that could play some football, right? I mean, and that was his job. I mean, him and Michael Hugh were tight, and then they left and started a sports agency that's still around today, wildly successful. I remember he had to cover Pac-Man Jones, and Pac-Man Jones did a bunch of bad stuff, and he was all over the paper. I used to make fun of him all the time. It was funny. But he, uh, he could be so rich. And then over circumstances, he had this encounter with Jesus and realized that he was that Jesus was rescuing and saving his family and saving him. And he forsook it all. And eventually down a road to where he said, I'm moving my family to Guatemala, which at the time was the fourth most dangerous country in the world. His youngest was five at the time. What do you think his family was saying? You crazy. What are you doing? I mean, his family was nervous. They're like, you can't do this. Why, how, why would you ever give your life away this way and give your kid's life away this way? Bring your wife here. What, would you, what, are, you, what are you thinking? This doesn't make sense. It's completely countercultural. I mean, he was Jerry Maguire, and he was really good at it. And now he's a missionary. And look at the impact 15 years later. I mean, he started there in Guatemala. It's gone to Honduras. Now it's spread, spreading across Central America. Now it's spread into Africa. It's getting ready to spread into Africa again. He's got these soccer academies for the glory of God where he's just absolutely breathing the gospel into young men in these, these soccer academies. And I've seen lives changed. I've seen people changed. I've seen the people that go down there and their lives changed. But what he did was crazy and countercultural. I remember when I was a part of the financial team at River City, I, w- I did kind of what Mike did. He's way better at it than I was, but I was the liaison to the finance committee um, as an elder at River City Church, the church that planted us. And you get to see who gives, which makes you walk around church going, you're cheap, man. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> totally joking. We didn't do that. Those are the people you kick off the finance committee. Um, but, you, but I remember seeing the top giver, and I remember it always shocked me. I was like, the, le- the least like, like everybody else probably assumed based on the wealthy people in the church, this person gives the most. This person, oh, this group of people, these three families who have multiple houses, you know, definitely make well over a million dollars a year, manage all kinds of money, and they're, you know, these are definitely the top givers. And I remember the, the, the person that gave the most money was the most unlikely. Drove a 2003 Honda, had had it forever, lived in an 1,800 square foot house with three kids, and nobody would have thought for a second that it was him. And he gave so much more money than everybody else. It was shocking. Like, you talk about unusual and countercultural. The amount of his 
wealth and the amount of his money that he kept for himself and that he gave away was just inspiring. I mean, it, it, it set something in the hearts of the people that knew. It, it just is an amazing thing. And we see that so clearly here in this response. And as you're reading this, you got to ask the question, what's happening? Like, what's driving this? What drives a human being to go and transition out of the, I got to get what's mine and I got to keep what's mine? And the second thing we see here is it's sacrificial. It's extravagant what she's doing, but sacrificial. Verse 38, it says, and she stood behind him being Jesus. And at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the perfume on them. Now, if you've studied this passage at all, you know that what she's bringing, this perfume in her world, was a year's wages. That's sacrificial. I'm not guessing this sinful woman, based on what commentaries say her life was like, was wealthy. But all of a sudden, she's dumping out at Jesus' feet a year's wages. And I'm not dropping the guilt bomb. I'm just going, dang. Like, am I going to just all of a sudden look at my life, count up what I make in a year, and just give that? Say, Jesus, you know what? You leverage this. I'm going to open my hands and you leverage this for what matters most in the end. Because something's happening in my heart. Something's exploding in my heart. Because that's what's happening to this woman. For her to unusually break through into the dinner and do what she's doing. No dignity. I mean, she's not thinking about dignity. She's not thinking about who's looking at me. She's not thinking about what this looks like because it doesn't look good. She's thinking, I can't help myself. It is sacrificial what she's doing. You know, there's a story in 2 Chronicles 21 where, where David is experiencing the mercy of God. He had sinned against God. He had started believing his own press. And I think I actually preached on this passage where he started believing his own press when he's counting his men. He's like, hey, yeah, let's just see how many people we got, how cool we are, how much better we are than everybody else. And then God was coming in and saying, hey, you're, you're treading on thin ice. And something begins to happen. And then God begins to show mercy. And an angel of the Lord comes to David and says, hey, you should go give a sacrifice on the threshing floor. It's where they would thresh out the wheat of this guy's house. So go to the threshing floor, build an altar there. And who knows why it was this specific place. But David goes there to this guy's house. The guy sees King David roll up. He says, hey, we're going to build an altar on your threshing floor. And the guy immediately responds, and David says, well, what do, you, what do you want me to pay? I want to pay market price for it. I've got all of this gold. I've got all of this stuff that I want to pay so that we can build an altar here. And the guy says, King David, you can have it. If this is for God and this is for you, you can have it. I'll give it to you. And not only that, I'm going to give you some oxen. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you this part of my land to set up over here. I'm going to give you this. And he starts to give David all the stuff. And David's like, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. And this is what he says. This is how he responds. He says, I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. David had experienced the mercy of God multiple times in his life. And he's, he's like, no, you're, you're not going to remove the privilege that I have to sacrifice and it's not that David believes that he could repay God. And we never, we can't repay. Are we going to repay Jesus for what he did on the cross? We can't repay, but we can respond. We do get the privilege to respond. 
It's just like carrying the gospel, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's not that we have to be ambassadors. Oh, I experienced this amazing grace. I'm, I've gone from death to life spiritually. I, instead of dying and being dead eternally, I get to be alive eternally. Oh, man, i got to be an ambassador and carry this amazing news in my heart to the rest of the world. No, it's this privilege we get. We get to respond. We get to change the way that we think. But it's sacrificial. You know, every year, my family, I got a big family, and uh, after Christmas, instead of doing, you know, gift, you know when your family starts growing and the gift exchanges with extended family starts, you're, you're like, dude, do I have to buy a gift for everybody? And you go broke. And after a few years of going broke, you're like, hey, let's put on the brakes. Let's do gift exchange. You do the white elephant thing. You do dirty Santa or whatever you are, depending on how sinful you are. And you, you got all these different Christmas things that you do. And we, so we started doing this by a... Like we, all the guys in the family, you'd buy a, you'd spend a certain amount of money, buy a new gift, and then you would bring a used gift, and then we'd play games and do all the dirty Santa stuff. And so the, the rules were this amount of money and then a used gift. Now, the, the rules behind the used gift is it's got to be something that you hate to give away. Like, it can't just be the thing that gets passed around from year to year, you know? Like, you know, the picture of the uncle that nobody knows. It's like, oh, we opened it. It's Uncle Teddy again. Yeah, we know. No, it's like, it needs to be good. And this makes it exciting when you're, because, and you walk around your house and you're thinking, and what is going on in the mind is this is sacrificial. Like, I've literally, and some, some of us obey those rules and some don't. Sometimes you open it and you're like, really? That was hard to give away? Um... <laughs> My wife always, like, I mean, literally is like looking at it going, I can't. I mean, yeah, Ann and Joe, same thing. They're like looking at things going, oh, I don't, I, I can't. And they bring it, and, it's, and it gets, and everybody goes crazy in the exchange. You know, you draw the numbers, and it gets, and the guys start, Mike Gajewski always does it right. Like, we always open his, we're like, dude, you're really giving this away? It's amazing. Um, but the la- it wasn't last year. It was the year before. I couldn't find anything. And I opened my, uh, I was like, I randomly opened my fridge and I saw like two of the biggest ribeyes I'd ever seen that I'd bought at the fresh market. And I thought, you know, it's not the typical gift that you bring, but I imagine people are going to be pretty excited about these ribeyes because this is the guy's gift. So I packed up two of the fattest, it's like Old Testament, bloody ribeyes. This is my sacrificial giving. And uh, it was amazing. I mean, everybody was fighting over them. I think Dan McFerrin ended up with the ribeyes. Cooked them and didn't, I didn't get an invite over for dinner. And they were my ribeyes. But sacrificial. It, 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 there was something to it that was like, hey, I don't want to just flippantly give because God doesn't need our money. And the, the reality is, is, it's not about how much you give. You know, we might want to say that and, and, you know, behind closed doors in the finance committee. Well, it really does matter how much all these people give. But it really does. In God's eyes, God doesn't need our money. One, he is what? He is looking at the condition of the heart. He's wanting to bring freedom today. And I'm, I'm not up here feeling some crazy obligation that the church is going to get sunk if you guys don't give. I'm just telling you, there is a, a, a place that you can get mentally and spiritually that will bring you freedom when it comes to finances when it comes to the way that you look at money. And it's not about giving your money here at OCC to the general fund, to our vision. It's, it's about changing the way that you think about giving your life away to Jesus and the freedom and understanding that we don't want to be in bondage to money, believing that it will be the salvation to our scarcity mentality. 
Believing that it will be our approval, that it will be the thing that keeps us safe, that it will be the thing that carries us into retirement, that it will be the thing that makes us feel okay, that it will be the thing that we can pass on to our kids so that they will be safe because that one's a knucklehead. He'll never have a job. We cannot put the foundation under our feet and allow it to be money. And we need to be free from that because it is fragile at best. Watch the economy. I love it. When you're free from money, you're not looking at the pump and the prices at the pump or the stock market or Wall Street going, oh, I mean, you're just not. You're free from that. It's like, come what may, God is sovereign and on high. Have I made the decision that what God's given me is not mine, but is mine to steward, to leverage for the glory of God? And when we change that, when we change, and how does that happen? I mean, I think that's the, that's the key, and that's where we land in number three. This woman was responding from overflow and not scarcity. Look, and, and, and I'll just kind of catch you up. She, she breaks into this dinner, and she goes and is responding. And obviously, Jesus and her had had an encounter, and he had forgiven her sins. He had possibly saved her life. And she had, she, had, she had experienced somebody that nobody in society would extend forgiveness. Nobody wanted to be around. She's the outsides of society. The people nobody wanted to be in proximity to that had any type of status. And all of a sudden, here comes a rabbi. And this rabbi that's now become famous, that people are following around, who's performing miracles, who people are saying is the Messiah. And he looked at me. He gave me attention. He approved of me. He gave me an opportunity. I didn't think I had a shot with God or the things of God. That was for other people to get in the inner court, to, to be near the, the temple life and the temple world. I've never been a part of that. I never thought I had a shot with God. And today I know that I have a shot with God. Not only that, I think I've seen him face to face. And now I'm washing his feet. Now I'm, I'm rubbing his feet with my hair. Now I'm pouring what's worth a bunch to the rest of the world, but now it's worth nothing to me. I'm pouring it out at his feet. She's, she's operating out of overflow and not scarcity. And then what happens? Jesus hears the grumbling of the Pharisees going, if, if he only knew who this woman was and what her life was like and what she's done. And of course, they think they're talking privately, but Jesus is, you know, like Superman and here's everything. And he, and he begins to tell the story, the, the parable. He says, hey, a money lender, you know, he lended 500 smackers to this guy and 50 to this guy. And he was generous and merciful. And these people were unable to, to repay their debts and he forgave their debts. And asked the question to the Pharisees, he says, hey, who's going to love the money lender more? Who's going to love this amazingly merciful and graceful banker more? And they're like, really? The dude that had the bigger debt. And then Jesus drops the hammer in verse 44. He says he turns to the woman, turned toward the woman, and like, you know, just pointing at her and just wanting, he's saying, hey, I need you to see something. These guys probably never had learned anything from a prostitute before. But Jesus is like, hey, I want to give you a little bit of classroom work right here with this prostitute. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. And she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman, which all would be customary, by the way, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. She has poured perfume on my feet. 
Therefore, I tell you, her sins, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Do you see that? Her many sins have been forgiven. He says it's obvious that her sins have been forgiven because she's responding to it in love. Not because she has to, because she can't help it. My life has been saved. I'm not, I'm, I've been seeking and looking for approval from men, from, from people, from the world around me. And now the king of the universe, the Messiah himself, looks at me adoringly. I'm responding. I can't believe this is true. Different view of money, different view of what it looks like to have dignity. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume, a year's wages on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. What's the point he's making? He's saying she has a very clear understanding of who she is. She knows what salvation looks like. She, Jesus wasn't saying that the Pharisees weren't, weren't sinful. In, in fact, he is highlighting their sin. He's just saying she's awake. She's awake to her sin. She understands how, the, the distance. She understands the gap. She understands how far away she is from having a shot at God, but now all of a sudden the gap has closed because Jesus has entered into the scene and changed everything. Powerful, powerful passage. You see, the gospel and worship are never separated. They're always kind of in the same space, aren't they? Like you hear the gospel and all of a sudden it's worship. Like worship doesn't happen and generosity doesn't happen without the gospel. We see this, this space where forgiveness happens. Repentance is on, on, on display, where there's a recognition of sin, but that the sin is, is being forgiven, that nobody's paying on this side, but Jesus is paying it all. And the gospel explodes. And as the gospel explodes like an atom bomb, this grace comes like an atom bomb, what happens? Worship happens instantaneously. Not because... She has to do it because she can't help it because it's the response. The vertical movement of grace into the human heart creates this horizontal explosion outward in the human heart. Randy Alcorn puts it this way. I love this, this just even thought process. He said, God's grace is like lightning and our generosity is like the thunder. And as a church, we want to make the thunder roll because we've experienced God's grace. You see, when lightning, and if anybody knows kind of scientifically, I don't know a lot of the science of lightning, but it, as it strikes, it creates this vacuum and this gap. And the reason that we hear this clap of thunder is that when, it, when it's gone and the ions change in kind of format in that gap, all of a sudden it comes together and it claps. And thunder is like this thunderous applause because it's just the clap of thunder. God's grace is like lightning. It's not this small, insignificant thing. It's this strike of lightning in the human heart, and then it creates this thunderous applause. And that's what you're seeing from this woman is the thunderous applause. She can't help but bring the ovation. There's no way she wasn't going to bring the ovation. It's such a powerful display. 
And like I said, there's people that give. There's something called the giving pledge. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, where they, they, they're trying to inspire other billionaires to give the majority of their income away, which is noble. But again, I think sometimes we're like, well, that's, we can get cynical. We're like, they're giving most of their income away and they're still disgustingly rich. So that makes us think, but, but what makes them, they, of course, they don't have scarcity mentality. Why? They are rich. But if you've received the grace and mercy of God, you've received the cross of Jesus Christ, blood poured out on Mount Calvary, death, burial, and resurrections, your sins now past, present, and future, annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ. Your eternity is now set. You are sons and daughters. You are seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. You are rich. You are rich. Scarcity mentality has been blown away. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, he starts to describe these people called the Macedonians that they gave out of the depth of their poverty. And he's blown away. He's teaching the Corinthians who are having a trouble being generous. He's like, hey, I just want to show you what generosity looks like. And you don't have to be rich to be generous. These guys have been persecuted. These guys gave out of the depths of poverty when you would think they have nothing to give and they were abundantly generous. He said something was driving that generosity and it was the grace that they had received. They understood something about their money. They understood something about their poverty, but they understood something about what it meant to give their entire lives towards the mission of God. And he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, I'm not commanding you. In this whole passage, he says, I don't want anybody giving under compulsion. God is looking for a cheerful giver. God doesn't need your money. So he says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. He says, I want you to look at these people because this is crazy. It's unusual. It is countercultural. It was sacrificial and it was out of overflow, but it doesn't make sense because they didn't have anything. He says, but this is, this is where it came from. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It's impossible to repay, but we get the privilege to respond. We do. It's one, of the, it's one of the coolest things. I have, you, you, you get to this place, and I'm not saying that I never struggle in writing checks and moving my finances out of my bank account and just saying, here, Lord. But I've never regretted it, not once in my life. And God's always provided. It's this crazy thing where it's, you're like, you know, you almost do it the way that God doesn't want you to. You're begrudgingly going, Ugh! and then all of a sudden, you look back, I look back time and time again when I thought, man, we were struggling financially. I don't think we're going to make it. I don't know what's going to happen in this season of life. I don't know where we're going to be. I don't know what's going to happen. I look back and I'm like, I had so little faith because God has provided for all of it. And it wasn't, it's not that it wasn't bumpy. It's not that we weren't biting our nails a few times or you know, going, man, we put a couple extra dollars on the credit card this month. I mean, we've done it. But God has been so faithful. I've never regretted pushing my money in his direction and not keeping it in my own pocket. God is so good. I love that risk. Just speaking of students, I love watching the gospel. And, uh, and students don't have hardly any money. Most of them have nothing, especially an 11-year-old. And I was watching, I love watching 11 and 12-year-olds, their heart get transformed by the gospel. 
Because for them, generosity and for them, worship is to give away dignity. I mean, popularity is the highest thing on their level. What do you mean when you say? I mean, kids are just worried about being cool. It's just like they come in and, you know, they got, they're wearing the right thing and doing the right thing. And, you know, you're terrified. And to be at church, to be expressive in worship, to be up front, to be engaged in what's going on is not cool. To be, you know, talking to your buddy and doing this and all that. That's what they think is cool. It's like, I don't care about what I'm doing. I'm just here for the games and just doing the thing and, and the talk. Now i got to listen to Derek talk about the Bible. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes, the gospel comes, and you see this just something happens in that mind where their frontal lobe hasn't even developed. They can't even think eight seconds in front of them. You know, squirrel, they don't even know what's going on. And all of a sudden, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, brings focus for 15 minutes, and they absorb the gospel. And then you see them respond in worship. And I'm always so impressed You'll see an 11-year-old. I saw one right here, right where Eric's sitting, just eyes closed. I'd never seen him doing it before, just worshiping at the end of, of students last week. By himself, just fully like, I don't care that I'm not cool. <laughs> Generosity towards God. I'm going to give you everything. And it was sacrificial because, you know what? People might not think I'm cool. That's fine with me. That's fine with me. And as adults, that's everything in our heart. That's everything. It's our finances. It's the world that we live in. So how, what does it look like for us to applaud? And I just want to say a few things as we, as we kind of land right here. And I want to give us an opportunity to respond. But there's so much that God's doing. Like this year, I mean, you'll find out. I'll give you a little preview to, to Vision Sunday next week. The largest jump in our budget that we've ever made. And not because we're like, oh my goodness, we've got all of a sudden got these bills. It's because we have big vision for what God's doing. And instead of investing, and we've spent years investing in infrastructure, we've been placemaking the last couple of years, which has been so much fun. We've got Suite 7 over here to create more and more spaces for people to come to invite anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace. It's been awesome. But this year we want to invest in people. And people are God's plan A for bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Not the stuff that we have. We need the stuff. I mean, we've got to have copy paper and have office supplies. I get that. But people, you guys, you are plan A to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we are excited that we are going to be investing more and more in you and more and more in the people that come here and are experiencing Jesus, that they might become anchors, that they might anchor somebody else's experience into the unending ocean of grace. We're doing that through, through foreign and, and local missions, as Dave was saying. I mean, we went from three and a half years ago, we didn't have a staff person or any anchors or anybody managing our groundswell ministries. We didn't even have groundswell ministries. We had missions that we were supporting, but to put somebody in headship. And then the Johnsons came on the scene and they took it over. And all of a sudden we have, we have foreign missions, groundswell leaders. And now that's expanded to seven people. I mean, we even got somebody in charge of logistics that's on staff for us, Caitlin. And now they've got a team and it's spreading the whole globe. And yeah, I mean, just think of one of those ministries. And again, we'll talk about, please come, we'll give you a lot more information. Just in one of the ministries in, in ACOA, we've talked about being a church planting church and what it's going to look like to plant churches as a church, how we're going to have to grow, build some infrastructure, and then we want to send our best when we plant a church. But we've now this year got an opportunity to plant churches, but not 15 miles down the road, not 20, not 50 miles down the road, but across the globe, we could plant churches. $3,000 investment. If we, if we work with ELI and specifically ACOA, ACOA, $3,000, a pastor gets assessed, 
He gets sent to Bible school to learn good theology. They get 75 Bibles for their church, and they get a place to worship and continuous check-ins and training, $3,000. I think we can plant multiple churches in 2022 and have the gospel exploding in another part of the world. How powerful is that? I mean, I could go on and I could talk about the reopening of Carver and what it means in our community to be there, to have tangible hands and feet in our community, tutoring kids that don't have the opportunities that you have. They don't have the resources that you have. They don't have the parental power. They have single moms that are grinding with five and six kids in a two-bedroom house trying to make money. They need your help, and we get to provide it with resources, with money, and with presence. Presence, not Christmas presents, but our presence being there. Being there. Tutoring. Saying, I'm with you. I'm going to support you. I'm going to be the face that you know. I know your name. We are, going to, we are going to push in that direction so hard. We want to see outside these walls. We've been, time, we've been spending time building roots and digging down to say we are in this community. And I've always said we want to be the community that when people, if we ever disappeared, people would go, this is crushing to Jack's Beach to lose Ocean City Church because we've had such an impact here. But it will take us all leaning in together with our resources, with our finances. I'm talking about in an unusual way, in a sacrificial way, in an overflow kind of way. And I'll just show you just real quickly how this, how this works. And then we'll give you an opportunity to pray about what God's going to lead you to give. Like just, just starting on the low end of sacrificial. I've always said this. This is kind of... Uh, a, you know, one of my illustrations I've used, I might get in trouble for using it, but just think about a six-pack of beer, a good one. So what are you looking at? Like an I-10, you know, high life, something, you know, really good boutique six, you know, local brewery. They're about $10.99, so it's rounded to 10 bucks. What if you just, for a week, and I like weekly giving because it's easier for me, smaller amounts in each week. It's just one of those things I like to do. 10 bucks, and I just say, you know what? I'm, I'm already giving a lot to Ocean City Church, but I'm gonna up it to $10 a week. I'm gonna add, add that to it. And say so we got, you know, let's just take 100 people out of each one of our gatherings, 100 adults. I'm not even counting students and kids, which I think they could push and give as well. But let's just, for the, for the numbers game, look at 100 in each gathering that just said, you know what? We're just gonna roll in. We're gonna, we're gonna do, take the six-pack challenge. <laughs> Never hear that in church. $200 right? Or 200 people, $10 weekly times 52 weeks a year. Guess how much money that is? Let's, let's look at it. 104. Okay. We have a, well, what is it? Around $150,000 increase. Okay. That's just the six pack challenge people. And we're, we're crushing it with our six pack. That is, un, and, and we're not even, we're not even in the ballpark of sacrificial yet. Like, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I guess. It depends on the six-pack. I mean, it's, I lied. you know what I'm saying? It's not even, we're not even there yet. And look at the, look how it compounds. I love the whole better together mentality because one six-pack, $10, 52, that's not all that much. But when we do it together and just say, we're just all going to do it, look what happens. Then that's not everybody. We have about 560 to 580 regular attenders, people that come here, you know, once or twice a month at least. I mean, we could immediately begin to fill in the gaps for some of these ministries and groundswell and beyond by doing that. Okay, now what if we got some new givers that are just saying, I'm jumping in. I'm talking about, we're just going to look at 10 people. 10 people. I love doing math. 
sometimes. And I hope these numbers work out. Mike's probably going to go, you added wrong. And if I did, that's fine. Um, I got five people giving $40 weekly. So it's a little bit more you haven't ever given before. You're like, I'm going to do $40 a week times 52. That's $10,400. Take two people giving $100. That's the same amount. One person giving $200 weekly, same amount. One person giving $300 weekly, $15,600. And one person giving five. And some of you are thinking, $500 a week, that's a lot. There's people doing that now. Beyond that, I mean, there's, there's people that are just sacrificially giving in this church, and it's amazing. That's $26,000. That's another 70. And this is, it's just 10 people. It's just 10 people. And that's 72,000. I mean, we're already beyond our budget increase just with those numbers. It's it just, I, I look at it in the power of the way that God can, and, and we are, again, God doesn't need your money. And God is not looking at the amount. He's not looking at, okay, well, I'm not, you know, I, I'm a PBR guy. We're going five. You know, I, he's not looking at, I mean, we know if we, if we read scripture, look at how Jesus addresses it with the widow's might. He knows this is, this is a, 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 what's, what, what's generosity for you. Somebody might give $26,000 this year, and I don't know if it's generous or not. I have no idea. I mean, they might, you might make a ton of money, and that just is like, that's nothing for you. And then somebody else might, you know, give $250 this year, and, and it might be, it might have just, just broken you. But in your joy, out of your poverty, like the Macedonians, you gave you gave generously. God's not worried about that. And I'm not. I want us all to be free, me included. I'm, I'm in it with you. I get it. I look at things and go, baby, you can't keep going to the thrift store. We're going to be broke. I'm with you. I get it. But man, I do get excited about this idea of us all jumping in the bucket together and going, let's do this. And let's see what happens over the next year. Let's see what happens over the next three to five years. Let's see this, this little tribe we call Ocean City Church just begin to explode like an alabaster jar at Jesus' feet into this community. And people go, this is unusual. This is countercultural, the generosity we're seeing. I, I just, I get excited thinking about it. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a little, a little break and we're going to take a little time where you can grab it. It's in the, in the seat back, you'll find a giving card. And you'll also have online, if you could fire that up there, you can do this, um, you know, online with the, with the QR code. And just to, to, we make it super simple, just putting in your commitment for this next season here at Ocean City Church. And to be praying as a family, as an individual, as a student, no matter where you are in life, just praying, what is it that I'm going to give? And I'm not telling you, you got to turn it in today. You can hold on to it this week. We're going we're gonna to address these cards again next week. If you, if you knew coming in, you're like, God already gave me a number. I had a prophetic vision last night. By all means, whatever huge number that is, write it down and we'll take it. Um, but think about it. Pray together as families. Pray together individually. And Allow God to work in your heart to think, what, what, what would be unusual for me? Sacrificial. And, and think about your story of grace and what God's done in your heart. Because I'm telling you, it will change the way that you look at your resources. God, I say, come Holy Spirit. Just come and work and move in the hearts of our church. God, we are so excited. We almost are coming out of our shoes thinking about what is possible that you're doing that we can't see. 